Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast, a place where we share the truth about food and farming from our kitchen to yours. I'm your host, Liz Hazelmeyer, along with my husband, Joey. Good afternoon. And together we hope to educate, inspire, and equip you in your pursuit of true nourishment. Today's guest is Megan Lyons. Megan is a Harvard graduate, MBA, and former management consultant who left the business world to follow her passion for wellness by opening the Lions Share Wellness in 2014. Since then, she's earned a master's degree in holistic nutrition. She's become double board certified in holistic nutrition and clinical nutrition, and she's currently pursuing a doctorate of clinical nutrition and has amassed over 10,000 hours of one-on-one nutritional consulting with clients internationally. Megan's also the author of Start Here, Seven Easy Diet-Free Steps to Achieve Your Ultimate Health and Happiness, which is a top 10 Amazon bestseller in nutrition, and she runs a podcast. Megan, welcome to the show. You sound like a very busy woman. Well, it's all things I love, including being here. So thanks for having me. I love that. Um, I love bringing on folks who are experts in the realm of nutrition to tackle some of the more confusing topics. Before we get into the nitty gritty, I would love to just hear a little bit more about your background, how you got into this in the first place. Sure. So I started off being a high achiever all the way from an early age. Whatever I do, I want to do it the best. Mm, And this is great. Yeah, well, it's great in many aspects, but when it comes to your health, it tends to um, Mm. have some problems. So I never really thought about my health growing up. I ate a standard American diet. I exercised because I like dance, but I didn't exercise because I thought of exercising. Mm -hmm. I truly didn't think about the nutritional value of food, but I was driving myself, driving myself, driving myself. So I studied economics in college just because I thought that was a good thing to study. I wanted to be like my dad who was in business and Mm -hmm. that was as close as I could get at my school. But I was really, really burning myself out without realizing what was happening. So as I graduated from college, I went into management consulting. I was having all these problems with kind of feeling irritated at the world, even Mm. though I'm a generally happy person. I was having temperature regulation issues, hormone issues, all this stuff. And I went into a doctor when I was 26 and the doctor said, you have worse hormones, lower hormones than the postmenopausal women that Mm. I see. You just must have something genetically wrong with you. So here's a bunch of prescription hormones. This is what you're going to have to take for the rest of your life. And even though I had zero – yeah, your face feels exactly (laughs) like how I felt at the time. I had no nutrition education at that point, but I just knew that was not the right answer for Mm -hmm. me. It couldn't be. I knew I was burning myself out, even though I wasn't really willing to admit it. And I knew that I had the power to heal my body if I could just learn about what that meant and figure out how to do it for myself. So that's where my journey started. I really started diving into the research in order to try to heal my own body. And kind of once you start with this stuff, I don't know if you all relate, but once you see that there's so much powerful information out there that people don't know, it becomes impossible not to share it. So several years after that, I ended up leaving management consulting, started the Lion's Share in 2014, and I haven't looked back since. Wow, that's amazing. I would love to hear sort of on a granular level how you began to heal your hormones. What was the first thing you went to when you were sort of self-educating? 
So I think of what I now know to be the term called allostatic load. I think of that like a stress bucket. I use a cup sometimes, so that's why I was holding up the mug. And we can deal with some water in our bucket, but when our bucket overflows, it causes problems. So for some people, that's hormone issues. That was me. For some people, it's joint pain or acne or whatever, but that's all a manifestation of our body screaming, this is too much. And we have to think about all those things that go into the bucket and weigh which of those we're willing to let go of. Mm. So a stressor could be environmental toxins, pollution, things that you're putting on your skin. A stressor could be underfueling or undernourishing. I was doing both in my case where I wasn't getting actually enough food, but I definitely wasn't getting enough nutritious food. I was eating protein bars and, you know, whatever was available that was quick. So under nourishing your body is a stressor. Of course, mental and emotional stress, I needed to learn how to manage that. Physical stress in the form of exercise. I love exercise and exercise is a stress reliever for me mentally in the moment. But cumulatively, when your body is under so much burden from these other stressors, running a marathon is not the best idea for your hormones. So for me, it wasn't one thing, but I had to think about constantly all these things that were going into the bucket and just be gentle with myself about what I could release on a daily basis. I never have been or will be perfect in any of those areas. That's not required. It's just a little bit. What can you give? What can you give back to yourself? What can you release from that bucket? And your body wants to heal. My body did not want to be menopausal when I was 26. Mm -hmm. My body wanted to heal. I just had to give it the opportunity to do that. Mm. And it sounds like just from your educational background, you saw food as a real avenue to, to access healing. So yes. that's wonderful. I want to hear some of your food philosophy as it relates to your healing your, of your hormones. And then I want to dive into some of these kind of misunderstood topics. Sure. Absolutely. Well, I'll start by saying the word macronutrient, many of the listeners have probably heard. In my mind, I really like to start there because it's so misunderstood. Nutrient means stuff that's good for you. And macro means big quantities. So I don't like to demonize any of the macronutrients, which are protein, fat, and carbohydrates, because just the definition of the word says this is good for us stuff that we need in big quantities versus micronutrients, also good for us stuff, but we need them in small quantities. So for me, being sure that I had enough protein, fat, and carbohydrates all throughout the day was really important. At that point, I was really great at getting carbohydrates. I don't think they were from the best source, uh, but I had plenty of those. Mm -hmm. I did not have enough protein and healthy fat. And so really... For me, I believe that most people, especially when they're dealing with adrenal hormone issues, things like that, will do great on some really good quality animal protein, making sure I had that enough in my diet, making sure I wasn't skimping on the healthy fat, getting your fat from you know the sunflower oil in a protein bar wasn't going to cut it, but really focusing on those nourishing fats for me. I think protein and fat are definitely focus areas when we're working on healing hormones and adrenals and all of that. And then the micronutrients as well. 
again, they're, they're nutrients, they're good for us. And having an abundance of those is really important when we talk about healing hormones, healing any kind of endocrine issues. So getting a wide variety of colors of vegetables and fruits and things like that. Again, getting micronutrients from our protein sources, as long as they're good quality protein sources, but really going into the definition of those two words helped me realize, oh yeah, I'm eating like stuff is going into my mouth, but the nutrient part is not really happening. Mm. Okay. So this resonates with me so much because um, a lot of people know my history. I had an eating disorder in high school and went through like clinical um, practice with a dietitian and then inpatient treatment. And it blows me away to this day that like we weren't taught that foundation. Like we were so focused on facing your fear foods and you just need to like overcome the psychological um, barriers that are related to your eating disorder. Whereas if they would have sat me down and given me like a nutrition 101 and said, hey, eating fat is not going to make you fat. Eating fat is nourishing. It's satiating. It's actually going to help regulate, um, stabilize your blood sugar. It's going to be beneficial. You're not going to be having the same like binge purge response to food if you're not just eating carbs all day. They didn't do that. And it's like, ah, if I could just impact that sector of society in any way, I wish I could, but I'm not, that's not my role right now. Um, But your breakdown of those macronutrients, it's like, oh, it's like every young woman specifically needs to hear that because- It's so almost elementary, but it's so impactful. And so that's how we talk to our kids about food is that we're like, listen, you need carbs are going to give you fuel and energy. It's it's a beautiful tool you can use, but they're not everything. They're not long lasting. They're not everything. You need your protein. You're growing. You need to build your muscle, build your strength. You need your fats. Um, Speaking of fat, I want you keep saying healthy fats, which again, some people would be like, "Ooh, what's your definition? So I'd love to hear your definition of healthy and nourishing fats. Sure. So the fat breakdown that most people use is monounsaturated. Well, let's just even simplify it more. Unsaturated, saturated, and trans fat. And I think the first thing we can almost all agree on, hopefully all, is that trans fat is... Uh, There's very, 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 very little room for that in a healthy diet. So trans fat are artificially hydrogenated fats. These are things like I always use the example of a Twinkie or an apple pie in the convenience store or something like that. Many people are now recognizing those are not healthy fats and those are kind of outlawed from the food system, although there are a bunch of loopholes, so we're still getting some of those in our diet. Then when we get into saturated versus unsaturated fat, most people would agree that unsaturated fat is great for us, and I agree too. The real uh, contention point for a lot of people is the saturated fat, and I think this is like a Goldilocks effect. Too little is not good. We can talk about cholesterol and why having too low cholesterol is not good for us. Mm. And too much, I'm also going to say, is not great. So we see people who go really deep into what I would call a pop culture keto approach where they're eating tons of like bacon and cheese and only that all Mm -hmm. day. And there is risk of that. So I'm not going to say eat as much saturated fat as you possibly can consume, especially if your quality is not there. 
But saturated fat is important for us. We don't want to take that out altogether. So that's the Goldilocks zone. We want a lot of unsaturated, very little to zero trans fat, and a medium amount of saturated. So as the knuckle dragger on the podcast today, give me some examples <laughs> of what an unsaturated fat is. So I'm guessing bacon, cheese. So we're looking at that's 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 saturated fats, mm -hmm. right? And so what would an unsaturated yes. fat be? Great question. So the truth is, if I'm really going to answer your question the way that I hear the words, almost all fat sources are a mix. So we mm. have something like an avocado, which we think of as an example of unsaturated fat. But the truth is there's a little saturated fat in there too. Mm -hmm. We have something like bacon, which I eat said as a saturated fat. But the truth is there's a little unsaturated fat in there too. So everything's a mix. But in general, we can think of plant fats as leaning more towards unsaturated. So olives, olive oil, avocados, nuts and seeds, depending depending on the nut and seed are kind of a blend between those two, but they have a lot of this unsaturated fat. So plant fats are uh, the ones that many people would agree we want more. And then it's those animal fats that tend to be hotly debated where I would say a medium amount is good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so uh, what has happened and what I've seen is that we had such an intense, almost like visceral response to, and I think there's reasons why. I, even reading the Crisco story, I think what we tackled on a previous podcast episode, but there's there's big societal shifts as to why our population and even our regulatory agencies have really honed in on saturated fat and kind of demonized it, leaving a lot of people to say, okay, well, then what do I eat? And then it seems like industry's answer was like, hey, here's this hyper-processed, oxidized, uh, polyunsaturated fatty acid profile within canola, grapeseed, corn, soy, oil, vegetable oil. I say that in quotations mark, quotation marks. And it's like, here's your solution. And now we're seeing an epidemic of heart disease. So I think it's so interesting that like within this conversation, I'm very pro olive oil, avocado oil, but I also like butter. And I'm with you on this. Like we don't just eat handfuls of butter. Like we're, we're in moderation. But what is your perception and understanding of this odd sort of industry and government push of these industrial seed oils as an answer to this fear around unsaturated uh, fat? That's such an amazing question. Thank you for helping me dive deeper into the answer because I realize part of my answer is going to say they oversimplified it and I just did in my previous answer. So this is great. We'll get into the nitty gritty here. When we look into the research of why saturated fat can be detrimental to some people in studies, there are legit studies that show those who consume more saturated fat have more incidence of heart disease when we look at it on a large scale. But here's the kicker. That only happens if there's inflammation in the body. Inflammation is the root of the evil. Mm. The Saturated fat is just a bystander that kind of makes the problem worse if there's already an abundance of inflammation. So that's why I say when we're focusing on those animal fats, we really need to focus on quality because a fast food hamburger of red meat causes inflammation and has saturated fat. Mm -hmm. And that is what I worry, what, well, not only I worry, what is true will lead people to higher mm -hmm. risk of cardiovascular disease. But a grass-fed 
piece of red meat that hasn't been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, et cetera, has been really well raised, that won't cause the inflammation. It does have saturated fat, but the fatty acid profile is completely different. That, when we look into the smaller studies that actually isolate the quality, that causes no issue at all. So that's what the government and whoever makes these rules latched onto was, oh, we see people who eat more, quote, red meat or, mm -hmm. quote, saturated fat, they have higher incidence, but they didn't parse through the quality mm. of all of this. So that's interesting. So there's, there's right, if we, if we take a percentage of all the people that are, you know, eating a lot of meat, mm -hmm. I'm going to guess that the lion's share, not to be, you know, punny <laughs> here, but like the, most people that are eating, you know, you know red meat are eating this fast food, right? Like McDonald's is a yeah, like lower quality. Two hundred billion burgers sold, right? Sure. So it's like you could yes. call that you could call that eating red meat. So when they take their sample, right, they do their their research, they bring, they collect this data, they're kind of just presenting the data, right? Yeah. And they're not they're not digging yes. into uh, the nuance of man, if you're eating meat, can it be valuable and can it be harmful? And I think what we would we would even potentially say, and maybe I'm wrong, I'm, maybe I'm posing this as a question. You could probably do a similar thing with um, vegetable, like like th this, like you know, more like away from meat approach. There's probably a nuance there where, um, as you're eating these vegetable kind of you used in air quotes, right, oils and fats, mm -hmm. uh, you could probably go down a route where you're eating oils of that nature that are also negatively affecting you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, I'm I get confused when I think the inflammation piece is key and. For me, I guess the question to those regulatory agencies and, and to you specifically, Megan, is we know that vegetable oils as they stand are inflammatory. So why did that replace the – you know, where did that come from? Is it just money tied up or is there legitimacy to their claims? Like I really want to know. I try to believe because it makes me feel better that no one is – intentionally misleading us into a generation of disease. Sure. So if I give these lawmakers the benefit of the doubt, I will say what they probably did is they said, oh, olive oil, that doesn't cause issues and in fact leads to improved heart disease outcomes. Avocado oil, that doesn't cause issues. So probably canola oil. Yeah, that's similar. Let's throw that in there. Canola oil is extremely cheap to process. All these oxida or potentially oxidized seed and quote vegetable oils, like you said, these are really cheap. And my guess is that they thought, well, it's probably the same. Now we see some of these issues with saturated fat with inflammation. We know olive oil doesn't cause it. Let's throw the other vegetable oils into that same bucket and Let's cross our fingers and hope for the best. Mm. And clearly, when it comes to people's health, crossing our fingers and not relying on the data is not the best outcome. But I don't think they had the chance or gave themselves the chance to actually do it. Yeah. So it is nuanced. And again, it comes back to quality. It's not as simple as saying, oh, olive oil, which can be cold pressed like literally with people's hands, that's healthy. So let's put this weird seed through an expeller processing <laughs> thing and then let's bleach it because it smells funky and then let's add a bunch of deodorizers and then let's do all this stuff. That must be healthy too. Yeah. It's just not that simple or that uh, that idealistic as they want it to be. Mm -hmm. Is it those additives and things that they're like the deodorizers? Is that, so, is that what's making it 
um, like cause inflammation uh, or is it just the nature of the seed or, or the oil itself? I think it's that and the oxidization of those delicate uh, omega-6 fatty acids. Obviously, Megan, you know more about this than I do. So I'd love your kind of breakdown, but. Yeah, you're spot on. I 100% agree. It's both. It's the bleach, which I never want to eat anything with bleach. I don't know why anyone <laughs> would assume we would, but it's that and all the additives. And then it's the potential for oxidization. So I would even say if I could uh, make sunflower oil, if I had some weird machine in my house and I could make sunflower oil and then consume it right yeah. now within like 10 minutes, I would probably do it. Oh, I don't wow. think it's the oil itself that's bad. It's the process of manufacturing and all this industrialized stuff that they have to do it. And the fact that these oils are so delicate and they're exposed to sunlight and they're exposed to whatever, the oxidization, as Liz said, that's what causes inflammation in our body. Mm -hmm. That's so fascinating. So one quick uh, tidbit, Megan, is that I went to culinary school before I went to business school. And so I worked in a number of restaurants and a number. And, and when Elizabeth and I got married, I mean, I, canola oil was like my go-to because that's what we used, yeah. right, in every kitchen ever. Yeah. And if it wasn't just canola oil, oftentimes you would take, and it's just got to be still happening. And yeah. It's been a while since I've been in the kitchen. But anyways... You would do a 50-50 blend, right? And so a lot of kitchens are doing 50% olive oil, 50% canola oil. And the purpose of that is to increase the smoke point of the olive oil so that when you throw it in a hot pan, um, anyways, uh, people are probably tracking with me. The server point. will still probably tell you it's cooked in olive oil. 100%. Because they probably don't even know. Um, and and when I, we started, when we got married, we were, we're cooking. I mean, I, I made a lot more decisions in the kitchen just from like I knew way more about food than, than Elizabeth did early on. Um, and as she started doing more research, there was a little bit of tension coming, like of like, hey, we can't use we can't use canola oil. Anymore. I'm like, I'm looking at, her, I'm like, what on earth could possibly be different about? And she was telling me, the, the, you know, this is how they're extracting it and they make it smell. And so, fat. It's so funny. We've done this podcast now for a long time, mm -hmm. recorded a lot of episodes, and this is the first kind of like real breakdown of why on earth is canola oil actually, or at least, but potentially harmful to you yeah. that I've actually heard. And I, I enjoy that a lot. Megan, I love that you said if you could extract the seed oil in your own home and consume it right away, because that paints such a clear picture. The other day, my brother was asking me, he's like, uh, if I can eat a handful of sunflower seeds and that's healthy for me, why why wouldn't sunflower oil be? And I had to it's say- It's a great question. It's a great question, but I had to be like- Yeah. And I kind of got frustrated with him because I was like, <laughs> you're older than me and you should know this. I'm your little sister. <laughs> but I am obviously way more into the food scene than he is, but- I was like, no, no, no. It's the processing of the oil that once mm. it goes through this transformation, you've got this really delicate fatty acid profile that any amount of like heat or light or whatever, even just sitting on the shelf, I can't tell you yes. how, how stable that's going to be. Then you ingest that. That's going to be a different product, which is why when the internet went crazy over PUFAs, people started freaking out and started saying, oh my gosh, I have to eat a PUFA-free diet. And I'm like, no, 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 you need omega-3 and omega-6 yes. fatty acids. It's not, that yes. it's not that polyunsaturated fatty acids are bad for you. It's that the oxidized oils in these industrial seed oils cause problems, but like eating the raw material isn't necessarily bad. I love sprouted nuts. So we buy like sprouted walnuts and we, we coat those with a little uh, maple syrup and add them to like our granola or our yogurt or our um, 
salads. Yeah. And I'm like, yes. I would never. I had someone once ask me, like, is are your cookbooks poofa free? And I'm like, no, <laughs> because, you know, it's I would say they're refined oil free. And I think that right there is a really clear distinction for anyone that's ever been like, what mm. is up with fat? And I love how you put a really healthy kind of tapered approach to don't go all in on the I see people eating butter on Instagram. I'm, I'm like, you know what to eat your own. But don't go all in on the saturated fat and don't expect you to have some repercussions. You don't even know that your body can metabolize that properly, you know? Yes. And then, yeah, love olive oil. I just – the way you painted that was 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 brilliant, I think, really, really good. It's the processing and the amount of time between the extraction of that oil and when it goes into your body, which mm. is really key. So, I mean, I'm walking away with the – I feel like that's the whole in, show. In, no, inherently <laughs> – seed oils aren't like inherently bad for you. That's not, there's there's so many things yeah. that happen to it that cause it to be funky in well, some capacity. Well, it's because that's bleach, how you have to extract it. So I would say they are inherently because that's the best mechanism. Got it. If we were to invent like like you can have I think you can have beautiful walnut oil. Mm. I believe or maybe flaxseed oil is maybe a little bit easier to extract, but like we weren't meant to like squeeze the rapeseed seed to get an oil mm. or like the cotton seed. That wasn't like it wasn't a food product that we were meant to consume. It was like, hey, we have a byproduct from the from the textile industry and let's whip it up and make Crisco and call it a day and convince people that lard is bad for them. So that's kind of the, the jam it. of that. Anyways, um, I love your philosophy on fats, Megan. I'd love to also hear about the cholesterol because this is also a really interesting topic. So can you, first of all, define what cholesterol is and where it's maybe made or consumed in the body? Because I think even those are two different things. And then um, how our approach to cholesterol should be viewed. Yes, absolutely. So I like to use an analogy of fire people in order to explain cholesterol and why it's been demonized and kind of what it's doing in the body. And I think this is why we've gotten it wrong. It's a similar story that we painted with the seed oils where the governing bodies took some research that is true mm -hmm. and they just took like eight leaps that were unfounded with it. Mm. So let's say we were, uh, we were not earthlings and we came down to earth and we noticed every time we saw a house on fire, there were firemen and firewomen there. Then we must think, oh my goodness, those firemen and firewomen, they're bad people. They're lighting all these houses on fire. We need to stay away from them. They're the bad guys. This is kind of what happened with cholesterol, where we noticed in people, not we, but researchers noticed in people with atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease, they noticed they had high levels of cholesterol. And they thought, oh my gosh, cholesterol, that's the bad guy. Let's demonize that. That's like the fire people. They got it wrong. They got the data right, but they got it wrong. The fire people are helping hmm. the damage of the house on fire. Cholesterol is helping the damage in our body. So it is a problem if our body is having so many um, mini injuries all throughout the body that our body is having to make so much cholesterol, so extremely high levels of cholesterol, that is a problem. But cholesterol is not the bad guy. Cholesterol is what your body's manufacturing to try to fix the problem. It's just a, a mm. false indicator. 
Mm. Let me pause there and see if that makes any sense. Totally, 100%. So when we have an issue, we our bodies naturally elevate our level of cholesterol. We're probably producing it so that we can fight. Yes. It's like white blood cells, right? So whenever we have you know a cut or a scrape or some kind of thing inside of our body that needs to be dealt with, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, and yes. we, we saw that happening. We're like, wow, heightened levels of cholesterol are in all cases of people that are dealing with this thing. Exactly. And so why would your body produce cholesterol? Well, there are lots of reasons that are unrelated to the many injuries I said. One is cholesterol is the basis for all of our hormones. So way back to my story, when my hormones were super low, I did not have enough nourishment coming in my body to make appropriate cholesterol. My cholesterol numbers were low, which might sound good, but it wasn't good in my case because cholesterol is needed to form hormones. There are many other purposes of cholesterol for our cell membranes and our skin integrity and all that kind of stuff. But in the issue of heart disease, it is... Uh, created by our body in order to fix little vascular damage that happens from inflammation. So from consuming too much processed food, from consuming too much alcohol, from smoking, from breathing too much pollution, any of these things can cause little damage in our vasculature system. And the cholesterol is like a plaque that's trying to coat over that little micro injury and trying to fix it. But the problem is when we have so many of those little injuries and we get plaques and plaques and plaques and plaques, then the space in between our blood vessels is decreasing so much that that can lead to a heart attack or other kind of issue that obviously we don't want. Mm-hmm. And break down for me, because there's different types of cholesterol and they've been maybe wrongfully or maybe rightfully deemed good and bad. And break those two down for me. Yes. So there are actually, if you look at a standard lipid panel, like if you just go to a normal PCP and they run, quote, cholesterol, they'll have the total cholesterol number. I don't look at that at all. I like basketball. And so I I say, if the total cholesterol is 218, that's like telling me the score of the basketball game was 218 total. I don't know who won. I don't know if it was a buzzer beater. I don't know if it was anything. That doesn't matter to me. So total cholesterol, ignore. Then there are three pieces under that, which are HDL, LDL, and triglycerides. HDL or high density lipoprotein, the reason this has been deemed the good cholesterol is this is like a taxi driver that's taking any kind of toxin or thing in our body, taking it out, taking it back to the liver for processing and getting it out of our circulation. So this is a a great thing. We need to take those out of circulation. And I think there's a time at which I would say maybe HDL is too high. I don't know a number because I have never encountered that in practice, but I can't imagine someone with an HDL of like 400 or something would be good. But in general, the higher, the better. So I think conventionally, the range is still above 30. I like to see above 40 in men, above 60 in women. So Mm. really high. We impact this by eating a lot of the good healthy fats, by moving our bodies in a healthy way, all of that. And then there's LDL, which is low-density lipoprotein. 
And these are uh, kind of the reverse of HDL. So this is going in the opposite direction as it relates to liver processing. And so this indicates that there's a lot more problem. We're having to churn out a lot more of these fixers if we have high LDL. So there's a problem in there. In general, we want this lower, although I can talk about why I don't want it to be like zero. A lot of more conventional practitioners are saying the lower, the better. Everyone should get on a statin. Statin should be in the water, all this stuff. Mm. I am Mm. not ready to go there or even close, but we don't want this to be super duper high. Generally under 100 or so is, is a great range to stay in. And then finally, there are triglycerides, which these are not transporters like the other two are. These are Uh, You can almost think of it as kind of like leftover fats in the body that your body can't process. This can come from uh, ingesting too much alcohol or sugar or too many of the wrong kinds of fat. These can gum up the system and gum up the liver and gum up the arteries in a way that is not good. So we do want lower of those as well. Mm. And um, is it that it's the same molecule? Is the... uh, the HDL high density, just the version because is this is gonna sound dumb, but it's packaging oh. up the toxin right and taking it to the liver to be expelled. And so once it's expelled, does it then become a low density molecule and get flushed out? Like, are these the same thing, just in different stages, basically, or are they two different types of molecules? Really good question. They're kind of like if you drew the diagram, it would be mind-blowing. There are lots of different pathways that these things can uh, take, but you're exactly right. If HDL is kind of overutilized or used in the wrong way, then it can become a a low-density lipoprotein. And just if this is kind of blowing people's minds, I like to think of it like a beach ball versus a a paintball or Mm -hmm. a a little BB gun. Maybe those are the same thing. They're they're balls in some way. But if I threw a beach ball at you, that's never going to hurt you. That's like HDL. It's kind of the same thing, but just a different structure. If I shot a paintball at you, which I would never do, that's (laughs) going to hurt you right? That's a a ball. It might weigh the same. It might technically be kind of the same thing, but that causes a lot more damage. So you can think of them like the same thing, just in a different format, kind Mm. of like what you said, Liz. Okay. Yeah. So from regulating the good and the bad or the HDL and LDL, what, what are some of our common practices we can do to regulate those the way we should be? Yeah. So I really um, empathize with people when they want something fancy. They want human nature is like, I want to know, I just have to import this crazy berry from like some faraway nation. And that's going to be the key to my cholesterol. And I think honestly, with cholesterol to get it into healthy, normal ranges, it comes down to the basics in so many aspects. So I oversimplify it, but the oversimplification is effective in saying that if we want to raise HDL, we focus on more movement of our bodies and more healthy fat. If we want to lower our LDL, we focus on more fiber. So vegetables, flax seeds, like you mentioned before, chia seeds, uh, fruit, whatever kind of fiber people consume, more water. Water is such a an overlooked 
practice when it comes to regulating cholesterol. That's extremely helpful at reducing LDL. And then moderate the quant or the quality, excuse me, of fat for LDL. Switching away from those seed oils and those industrially processed oils, switching away from processed food into getting your fat from healthy whole foods. And then finally, triglycerides, the oversimplification, but again, pretty good one, is the alcohol, sugar, and things that turn into sugar, which is like refined white bread and, uh, you know, Twinkies and things like that, things that your body very easily and quickly breaks down into sugar, those raised triglycerides. Mm. So it sounds like eating a whole foods, real food diet is the key there. Amazing. Yes, that that is the key. Isn't that funny? And honestly, your body will regulate itself in the absence of any of these other issues, your body will regulate cholesterol to the appropriate level. I think reference ranges are great. We have to have something to compare it to. But some person, if they're eating a very healthy diet, they might just naturally have a little bit higher cholesterol. Some person might have lower. I think paying attention to your body and your inputs and eating that whole foods diet and then seeing what your body does, that's a much better answer than just determining it based on this reference range that was set by the average population. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've heard a great way to understand even the balance between HDL and LDL is like, there's like a ratio there. Like, so a perfect ratio would be, I forget what it is, maybe 40, 60 or something. Um, And so looking at it in that regard. And so I, I would think it would be really interesting for us to like get our blood drawn and do like a full panel. I don't know. I think that would be interesting data because I I don't think I've ever actually looked at that for for myself. I assume it's pretty good to go. But the one thing that I, I've had people message me in the past and they've said, oh, my husband went in, had his blood work done. He's told he has high cholesterol, so we have to cut all animal fats. And, and so I'm like, so what are they telling you to do? Like, are you going to those industrial seed oils and then wreaking more inflammation on your body and then increasing your it, it feels like a really terrible cycle. So I'm kind of waiting for like the medical establishment to catch up to real nuanced suggestion around balancing yes. those levels. Because to me, I'm like, you'd have to, you'd have to like do your own little mini uh, thesis project to figure it out on your own, you know? So I think that's really hard for folks who, who encounter that uh, in the doctor's office. It is super hard. And trust me, you're you're speaking my language right now. I wish I could sit down with every person in the world for 90 minutes and review their lab work and tell them a personalized protocol. And unfortunately, I just can't do that. But it is so much more nuanced than that. It is true that if you just cut out animal fat, your LDL will drop. That is true. But that creates so many other potential problems, as you're saying, based on what we replace it with. Mm. And that's not even the goal. The goal is not to artificially do it. That's like saying, I really want to be taller. Well, I can wear high heels, but that didn't actually make me taller. That's Mm -hmm. just a patch over Mm -hmm. the issue. I feel the same way with cutting out animal fat. It might look good in your lab work, but it's masking the issue and definitely not solving the real issue and probably creating more issues based on what you replace it with. Yes. I think that's so good. It's so good to hear 
people like you who have the expertise in the academic backing to explain this because when you're sitting at dinner with your brother or your sister and they're trying to explain to you like it's more complicated than that it's just hard it's hard to hear those competing voices and not really know who who to listen to so that's really good um another thing i think people like to artificially lower by cutting out certain food groups is blood sugar and for me my blood sugar journey was Um, I didn't really think about it and I think it played a huge role in, um, sort of my bad relationship as a teen. And then this year I started to learn a lot about blood sugar and glucose regulation. I wore a CGM for eight weeks straight and just got so much data on my body. And so I'd love for you to kind of give us your, um, overview of blood sugar and blood sugar regulation and why that is again, so important for us to understand. Yes. Amazing. So I'd love to start by telling people, just like you said, what blood sugar actually is, because I bet if I pulled the average person walking down the street, they would say, oh, we should have our blood sugar be zero. And that's (laughs) not true. You're going to be dead. So we don't want that. Blood sugar is essential for life. We just want to mitigate the huge swings of blood sugar. So when I eat carbohydrates of any kind, whether it's celery or it's a cupcake, my body's going to break that down, the carbohydrates, into little sugar molecules. And so the sugar molecules then pass through my intestinal lining. They go into the bloodstream. And that is where we want to keep just a little bit of sugar. So the ranges that people might see might be 70 to 110 or something like that, depending on which reference ranger you're looking at. That sugar in the blood, that gives us energy, that powers our brain, that does all kinds of great stuff. But what happens if I – oh, and let me add one more step before I go to the cupcake – my, I have a hormone called insulin. We all do, except those of us who are type 1 diabetic, like my sister and other family members. Uh, our pancreas churns out a hormone called insulin. And I like to think of insulin like a Pac-Man. So it goes around and it grabs those sugar molecules and it puts it into the cell. And that's where we use it for energy, all of that kind of stuff. That's great. So we want to moderate that amount of sugar that's actually in our blood and put more of it into our cells. But what happens if I eat cotton candy? I go to the Texas State Fair, which is the craziest place ever for nutrition. I don't (laughs) recommend it, Um, but fun for many other reasons. I eat some cotton candy. That is so much sugar in my bloodstream all of a sudden that my insulin, my Pac-Mans, they can't even keep up with it. They're trying to do their job. They're trying to grab the sugar and put it in the cells, but they're just like, overwhelmed. There's too much work. If that happens to me one time, that's okay. I can recover. The the Pac-Mans will eventually catch up. But if I'm eating cotton candy or something else like that, day after day, hour after hour, my Pac-Mans eventually get so burned out. They've been overworked and they've been flooded by all these sugar molecules that they're like, forget it. I need to take a break. And that's when we start having insulin resistance. That's a term that many people these days are starting to hear because it's increasing in prevalence and awareness. And so when we get insulin resistant, then we're eating sugar and carbohydrates and our Pac-Mans are no longer doing the job. Our blood sugar elevates and elevates and elevates. And this turns into diabetes and eventually non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and things like that. Mm. So- 
Obviously, for chronic disease reasons, we don't want to overload our Pac-Mans by eating too much sugar day after day. But if you want, I'll, I'll stop there. But if you want, we can move on to how that would impact us on a daily basis, even if we're not eating cotton candy every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, for me, it was like the realization that even within the framework of a pretty real food nourishing diet, I I would get spiked. So I kind of leveled out at like 83 was like kind of my just go-to um, milligram per deciliter, just blood sugar reading at all times. And, you know, something as simple as like eating an orange with zero uh, other food before it. Yeah, food around it or food before it would, would could spike me maybe 50 uh, milligrams per deciliter. And so I was like, oh, interesting. Something whole and natural and healthy as a piece of fruit eaten on its own would do something to me. I noticed even a coffee with a, a teaspoon of maple syrup would also give me quite a significant spike. Whereas I, I learned um, that I could eat carbohydrates in a broader context in a more responsible way and mitigate those spikes and in turn balance my energy level. So this doesn't bode well for the people that want to start their day off with a fruit smoothie. No, no, it doesn't. Is what, is what I'm hearing. And so uh, before we move on, because what, what you'd mentioned, Megan, I definitely want to get into, but just curious, you, you mentioned cotton candy. This can absolutely, right? I mean, that's like, I feel like the epitome, unbelievable. I mean, the Pac-Man definition, it's I feel like a genius because I understand it so well based off of your, <laughs> based off your articulations, which thankful for that because I need it. Good. Um, but are there other foods that may seem harmless or trend trendy things that we're eating or that you're seeing in the in, in the world today that hey, you know what? Just be aware. We're not gonna, we're, we don't want to demonize any food. We're not trying to scare anybody here. But mm-hmm. just what is it, Megan? That when you meet with people, and you talk to them, or you test their blood work, and you see what they're and you see what they're eating that might be a common misunderstanding of uh, you know a healthy food that isn't going to spark spike our blood sugar. Yes, great question. So anything with added sugar that's not balanced out by protein and fat will almost surely spike your blood sugar. So I don't know, Liz, if your coffee with a teaspoon of maple syrup, if you ever experimented by putting a bunch of coconut milk or heavy cream or something in there with it, Mm -hmm. I bet the blood sugar spike would have been less. Mm -hmm. Did you ever try that? I never tried it. No, I should. Okay. Well, it's okay. Or collagen in your coffee or something like that with protein or fat to balance it out. So when we're looking at, Mm -hmm. like in my case, back in you know, when I was in my 20s and I was experiencing all these issues, I was looking for low calorie things, which tended to be like bars that are carbohydrate only. And even if they were low calorie, they were not balanced by protein or fat. Mm -hmm. That sugar, even if it's just a few grams, five, six, seven grams, something like that, imbalanced by protein and fat, that causes a very high blood sugar spike. So with your orange, Could you have consumed that after a meal that was rich in protein, fat, and fiber, and then have an orange as dessert? I bet your spike would have been very small in that case. We really want to focus on balancing it. A lot of these healthy foods and drinks, I will say too, like packaged drinks that maybe have some added vitamins or something like that so that they're selling it as healthy, even if it's a little bit of added sugar, but it's not balanced, that's going to spike our Mm. blood sugar a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, where people are running into trouble. But I will say in the case of the orange, 
if your blood sugar went up, even if it was 50, and then it came down relatively quickly within like 30 minutes or an hour, that's what your body is supposed to do when you get sugar. That's a healthy response. The problem is when it goes up 50 and then it hangs out there for like three, four hours, that's when we see insulin resistance. So we don't, I wouldn't encourage you to eat a bunch of oranges on an empty stomach over and over to cause that spike. But it's not that your body was broken. Your body's doing what it was supposed to do. It's just that that food on an empty stomach is not optimal. Mm. Mm, that's super interesting. Yeah, that's a great point because that would always be people's follow-up question is, oh, well, did your body come back to baseline? And it's like, yes, but then uh, sometimes I would have a dip because it would kind of mm -hmm. spike up and then dip below baseline and that's where I'd feel a crash. And so mitigating the super high spike, which in turn mitigated the crash, was really helpful. But then you're right. I don't have diabetes, so my body was responding appropriately. Mm -hmm. But there's a certain level of stress that happens when you're like, whoa, we're going really – it's like a roller coaster ride. We're going really high and then we're going to dip low and we'll bring you back, but it'll be kind of a wild ride. Versus I did try the coffee in the context of breakfast or eating before or um, having an orange after a meal, having some yogurt with mm. some fat and some protein in there. So all of those were super, super helpful for me. But um, it took kind of measuring my own mm. body's response to these foods. I think everyone's going to respond differently. So that was going to be my follow up yeah. is so we have young kids. Um, we're obviously, you know, Older, or so. I would love to know how these sorts of this blood sugar regulation can look different in different contexts. In the context being that of maybe it's a, a three, five, seven, twelve year old, or a you know um, someone in their thirties versus someone that maybe is in their sixties, seventies, eighties. Is there any difference, or is it all just hey, everyone should be approaching this the same way? The way that it should, and I put should in air quotes because I just hate that term. It's one of my least favorite words, but I am hearing it come out of my mouth. So I'm going to go with it in this case. And it should work in our society and humans is that as we're younger, we have a lot more tolerance to deal with sugar and spiky foods, things that would spike our blood sugar. And then that decreases as we age. And the reason is twofold. Number one, the Pac-Mans, when you're 90 years old, they've been going for a long time. They're <laughs> yeah. tired. So it is natural to become somewhat more insulin resistant as you age. But we really speed up that process by calling on our Pac-Mans too much over time. Mm. So I believe, and, and this is shown in places like the Blue Zones and elsewhere, that it is totally possible to be 90 or 100 years old and not have diabetes or insulin resistance or anything like that. But those people have not overworked their Pac-Mans for 100 years. They've been treating their body well. That's one mechanism. The other is an emerging hypothesis, but I feel so convinced that research will play out in this uh, way in the next hopefully decade, which is the impact of the microbiome on our blood, on our ability to regulate blood sugar. And as a child, we would hope that the child had a wonderful entry into the world and has not received a lot of the foods or medications or things like that that would deplete their microbiome. Their microbiome, their gut bacteria is working really well, so they're better able to tolerate these sugars. And then 
just like I said, it's possible with the blue zones and other places not to do this, but many of us deplete our gut microbiome as we get older, and that makes us uh, less able to to manage those blood sugar spikes. Mm. I, I was thinking that you might answer it that way. Of course, I don't know anything, so I was going to let you answer yes, it. Yes, you and do. Then, and then I was going to react. <laughs> However, um, I just remember as a kid, right, Halloween, uh, and we don't really do a whole lot of Halloween candy situation here anymore for our kids, but... I did as a kid, and I would eat just absurd amounts of candy. Or like in your teens, the Mountain Dew, or like in like the soda, right? So, so uh, like the eighty, yes, eighties and nineties and early two yeah. thousands, soda was just like it was. It was. It, I mean, there would be days I remember going where I I, I wouldn't pick up a glass of water. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I just yeah. I remember that as a, I just remember that, and I think there's a lot of people, and there's probably still people today that that's the reality, right? And I know people that wake up and I don't drink coffee. I do, you know iced tea or I do, you know, or sweet tea or I'm doing, you know, uh, a soda or whatever. And I just have to imagine exactly what you're saying, man, this is, this is causing people to become more and more resistant to insulin earlier than they ever should have been. Mm. And, um, it's also something that, man, I think it's just a healthy reminder to, to be aware that as you kind of get a little bit older and you've, you've been eating, you know, food in America for, for a long time, yet you're not living in, you know, some remote country in the, you know, you're in, in Asia, right. That, uh, wow. Being, being more aware. And, and then looking at your kids and I mean, I, I will sometimes try to regulate my kids. I think maybe this is where I've made a mistake. I sometimes try to regulate my kids. Like I regulate myself mm. and I don't know, they're set up differently than I am. And yeah. I get really anxious about that sometimes. I think too, so I'd be interested to wear the CGM now because I feel like I've put on some muscle, but our kids, their muscle to, their muscle to fat ratio is probably much healthier than the average adult. And we have, our, all of our children are quite lean. Um, and they just run around all day. Yeah. And so I, I know muscle plays a huge role in your ability to store and use the, the glucose that's circulating in your body. So I, I, that's got to be part of it. And I'm also kind of like you know, I, that gives me encouragement if I am an adult who is struggling with regulating my blood sugar. There are things mm-hmm. I can do um, aside from just eating. It's I can put on some muscle. And so this is going to kind of lead me to my um, – I want to keep going on the blood sugar. But after that, I want to hop to protein because that's always mm. that's always a misunderstood piece of this. So, yeah, what else on blood sugar um, can we dial down into? Well, I think in talking, the two of you hit on three really key points, which I'll just reiterate. What you were saying, Joey, is that on Halloween, you ate all this candy and you probably like had, you know, energy bouncing (laughs) off the walls, go crazy. And then what happens to kids after that? They have a temper tantrum and they pass out in the middle of the floor. So that's an extreme blood sugar spike. But I bet if it wasn't Halloween and you had had one piece of candy when you were seven years old and then you went around and played on the playground – like nothing would happen. No Mm -hmm. big deal. You wouldn't even feel that blood sugar spike because the activity plus the moderate amount is fine for kids. I don't have kids. I have eight nieces and nephews, but I would never, if I had control over their food, I would never tell them absolutely zero sugar ever. You can't eat fruit. You can't eat any of this stuff. No, that's 
not what kids need to do. It's just moderating the amount, which leads into the second thing that you said, Liz, which is kids are bouncing around all day. If we as adults have blood sugar regulation issues, something as simple as going for a 10-minute walk or doing folding some laundry, going out and gardening, vacuuming your house, like whatever you got to do to move around for 10 minutes after your meal, that mitigates the blood sugar spike incredibly significantly, even with the same amount of carbs or sugar or food. Um, And then finally, the muscle, I'll just corroborate. Yes, muscle is the largest glucose disposal organ we have in our bodies. That's super powerful. That's why people who are really jacked in the gym, they could eat a bag of gummy bears and have no problem versus someone who might be older, might have some sarcopenia, might not have developed the muscle. They're going to have a a more significant detriment from that. Mm, Yeah, that's so So age, muscle mass. And then kind of, and then past, like how have you, how have you kind of treated your. Yeah. What's the fatigue level on your insulin? You know, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting concept. I've also heard that the more body fat you have, the higher insulin response your body requires because it's almost kind of like regulating the energy flow. So it's like if you consume a lot of glucose, which is an energy, you know, fuel to the fire. Well, we don't want to burn your existing body fat because then we'd have too much energy in the circulatory system. So if you have a lot of body fat on board, you got to release a lot of insulin to keep kind of the gates, you know, locked essentially, which also is again a good reminder to say, hey, if you want to work on your body composition, increase your muscle muscle mass and therefore try to decrease some of that visceral fat you're dealing with. Am I understanding that correctly? That's exactly right. It's a great uh, overarching explanation. Our fat is actually an important tissue as it relates to uh, our metabolic hormones, which are insulin and leptin and adiponectin. We want to have some fat because that moderates this whole approach. Also, it's like cushion for our organs and things like that. So zero fat, that's not the goal. But an excessive amount of fat, more than your body is designed to carry, leads to exactly that response where your body starts getting confused. It's not metabolically flexible. It can't burn into that fat. So then it requires more sugar and you have more sugar cravings and it's a vicious cycle of uh, uh, becoming more insulin resistant and more over fat or having more adipose tissue on your body, it can be really confusing for people who feel in that spiral, Mm. but we can definitely reverse it by just like you said, building muscle first and, and also focusing on dietary practices and movement that helps reduce the body fat. Yeah. It's such a good message of hope. I feel like it, if we could change people's lives just by reminding Mm. them, Hey, you can, you can improve your body composition and even look at this number on the scale. Um, yes. It's life-changing. So mm-hmm. I, I do want to get into muscle building and protein because I know those two go hand in hand. So talk to us about the importance of dietary protein and um, kind of your recommendations for building a, a strong lean muscle. Yeah. Protein is so important and it is important for muscle. So that's probably the most known use of protein, but it's so important for other things too. Osteoporosis and osteopenia are 
on the rise very significantly these days, in part because people don't have enough amino acids, which are Mm -hmm. like the building blocks of protein to support healthy bone tissue. Also in part because things like soda and other things leach the calcium from our bones and we're not getting enough minerals in our daily life. But bone health is regulated by protein. A lot of parts of our metabolism and our temperature regulation, our thyroid function is impacted by protein. Certainly our cravings, our energy levels, levels, all this kind of stuff. So people here, my clients might hear me say, let's try to get a a serving of protein at each meal and I'll tell them what a serving is and all this. And they're like, oh no, I'm not trying to become bulky. I'm like, oh no. To become bulky, especially as a woman, is going to require I'm not kidding you, like eight hours in the gym per day of lifting extremely heavy weights and probably some anabolic hormones, steroids, testosterone, something like that. It's not going to happen just by eating protein. Might protein help you uh, with the, the slight body composition changes, like developing more lean muscle and burning some more body fat? Yes, but it's not going to make you bulky to eat protein three times a day. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish people understood protein as like the beauty macronutrient because for me, I'm like, the protein is my guiding north star. If I can hit my protein, my carbs fall into place, my fat falls into place because I'm eating whole real foods. I'm not really isolating these things. If I'm eating yes. protein in the form of animal fat, there's going to be – or sorry, animal foods, there's going to be a little fat on there. But yeah. I'm not overindulging. Um, and so I don't know. I just think – if more, and I think it's a common trend. I think now a lot of women are waking up to it, but I think we were kind of, as a society, taught to like order the salad instead of the steak. And I just think that's yes. so funny because I think our body composition would benefit so much more from the steak. And so, I'm, totally, I think it's switching. But I, I think that's such a funny misunderstanding that it's we've like had. a Seinfeld episode you know? yeah yeah I'll it's just ridiculous yeah. it's yeah. ridiculous That's yeah good. yes and what happens though when you eat that salad only instead of maybe the steak that you were craving is you get hungry an hour later if you say like oh hold the dressing I'm trying to watch my weight or something <laughs> like that like oh no salmon I know that has fat no avocado something like that you're hungry that leads to either you grabbing the candy bar in the office or something like that or your blood sugar kind of getting wonky because your body's trying to regulate that it doesn't have enough food, then the next meal you might be likely to overeat or your body starts shutting down some, quote, non-critical functions like your hormones in my case or something like that. It would just be much better to fuel your body with a balance. I'm not saying eat just a steak on a plate three meals a day, but a balance of nutrients that your body's craving nip that blood sugar spike in the bud, fuel your body, and then you don't have to worry about eating an hour later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I'd love to hear some of the practical ways or just even examples of the ways that you approach your food on a daily basis. Maybe give us like a great ideal breakfast, lunch, and dinner that you enjoy. Sure. Uh, I do want to give the caveat that it varies based on the person. So when I do things like this, I'll tell you what works for me and what I can see in patterns of clients. But I don't want anyone to hear this and say, oh, Megan said she eats this breakfast, Mm -hmm. so now I have to eat this. It Mm -hmm. might be different for you, and that's totally great. 
Um, if I, I've always said, if I could sell like a $1 meal plan that worked for everyone, great. I would not go through all this work of like, <laughs> you know, seeing clients and being on podcasts. I would just sell the $1 meal plan and everyone would be happy. It's just not that simple. Mm-hmm. But anyway, to answer your question, I am someone who has dealt with a, a sweet tooth for a long time, as long as I can remember. And part of that was that I was underfueled and overstressed. Uh, but I think naturally I, I like sweet food. I have a predisposition towards that. So if you ask me, Megan, you're going to wake up tomorrow. What sounds amazing? I'm someone who's much more likely to say, oh, cinnamon rolls and pancakes as opposed to like a steak. But here's what I've found. If I find savory foods that I enjoy, I'm not eating things that I don't enjoy, but savory foods that are rich in protein and fiber that I enjoy for my first meal of the day, my sugar cravings are almost 100% lower through the rest of the day. So I still, like I love chocolate, really dark chocolate, good quality organic chocolate. I still have chocolate almost every day. I'm not trying to be a robot here, but I don't want to be craving sugar all the time. Mm -hmm. And a savory breakfast really helps me Mm -hmm. with that. So breakfast that I enjoy, I make this breakfast casserole, which has some eggs and cauliflower rice and broccoli slaw and ground turkey. It's cooked in some ghee. It has some really good herbs and spices in there. And I'll make that up for the week. Or I'll do a breakfast hash, which has some kind of ground protein in there and some sweet potatoes, Brussels sprouts, peppers. This week I did a spinach artichoke crustless quiche, which Mm -hmm. has obviously spinach and artichokes, eggs, things like that. So you see the basis is like some kind of protein, whether it's eggs or meat or both, and then some kind of fiber. Sometimes I'll do berries. And for me, berries are not too sweet that I have sugar cravings the rest of the day. But most of the time it is vegetables in the morning for me. That's just what makes me feel good. I exercise in the morning, so I do better with a a fuller Mm. breakfast after that. Um, And then lunch kind of varies based on the situation, but I would say most times it's either going to be a soup or chili of some form. Again, like protein, some healthy fat and vegetables. I really like soups and chilies because it's easy to make and it's easy to have a bunch of good nutrients in there without – you know, feeling like it gets super boring. I can Mm. always change up the flavor. Sometimes it's a salad, but if it's a salad, uh, which I genuinely enjoy salads, it's not the salad that I used to make, which was like iceberg lettuce with two cherry tomatoes and like, you know, no dressing. That's not going to cut it for me. It's a salad that has a bunch of dark leafy greens in there and it has some acorn squash or kabocha, which are some of my favorite um, whole foods carbohydrates. It definitely has protein. It has multiple sources of healthy fat. So it might have some pumpkin seeds and some avocado and a dressing that I made with who knows what lemon juice and olive oil and some herbs or whatever. So it's a really robust salad because I don't want to be hungry again, Mm -hmm. 30 minutes later. And then dinners. I mean, I'm, I don't get bored, so I would ha- be happy eating the same thing all the time, but I try to vary it based on the seasons, based on just like giving my body exposure to other nutrients. So last week I made a spaghetti squash lasagna, which had like a cauliflower cream sauce in there and some uh, ground protein as well. I might make uh, 
sometimes it's as simple as like a salmon filet with a couple types of roasted vegetables and some avocado or something like that. It really just depends. But you can tell the structure of most of my meals are a bunch of vegetables of various kinds, definitely some protein and some healthy fat to round it up. Mm, yeah, I'm hungry thinking about I that. I was going to say, holy <laughs> so that breakfast casserole sounds like it hits. I know. Like, I know. We should do that. Yeah, that sounds outstanding. Do uh, it. It sounds really good. Um, I would love to know as as a professional in the nutrition space, what are some of the th- if you, if I could give you a moment to like step on your soapbox here or kind of shout from the rooftops, what are some of the things that you wish the average consumer understood about their food and nutrition? Oh, that's such a great question. I could probably go for three hours. But if I had to say one message that I would shout from my soapbox, it's in a loving way to everyone, stop looking for the miracle answer. Mm. I know that it's human nature Mm -hmm. to find that perfect dietary pattern that's going to solve all your problems and fix your hormones and give you a six pack and all this stuff, or you just haven't tried the right supplement, or you just haven't tried the right um, timing or anything like that. There's just not a magic answer. And I don't think there will be in my lifetime. I don't think there will be ever, even as technology advances. It's got to be back to whole food. We did not have these issues 200 years ago, 100 years ago, arguably even 60 years ago. We didn't have these issues. Mm-hmm. Yes, people got sick. And and unfortunately, that's what humans do. Food cannot solve every single one of our problems, but food can solve a whole lot of our problems if we stop looking for the fancy things and just listen to our body and get back to the basics. Mm, I love that. I love that uh, your title of your book is called A Diet-Free Thing. Um, Mm -hmm. I think something Joey and I have been talking a lot about is like stop searching for the diet, the one, you know, sexy one-liner of this is the new thing, the keto, the paleo, the whatever, because all of us are so different and we live in different climates and we have different seasons. And I just think having a diet-free approach is wonderful. And so I think your um, expression of that is is really great. I don't know if you want to give away some of your seven points or habits or um, pieces of your book, or but maybe if you could share one or two, that would be really awesome. Of course, I will. Let me preempt it by saying, if I called it the lion's share diet that will solve all your problems, <laughs> the book would have sold a hundred times more than it did. Yeah, and yeah. I am not willing to do that. So um, it was written with utmost integrity. But to your point, it is not as sexy to have the diet-free approach. I just believe at my core that that's the answer. So if people read the chapter titles of the book, they would say, oh yeah, I know most, if not all of those things. The cha- There's one whole entire chapter that talks about drinking water, which everyone listening to this podcast knows is healthy. But I would tell you 80% of the clients that come into my office, they're not actually mm. drinking water. They don't know the difference between tap water and vitamin water and um, soda that has water and mm. spring water and mineral water and all this stuff. They don't know how to actually hydrate themselves. They don't know how much to drink. And even if they do, they're not drinking that. So there are some of those basics, water, 
vegetables, there's macronutrient balance in there, things like that. And then there are things like self-talk, which I think is a hugely important component of nutrition. And at the beginning, I I kind of stayed away from some of this more woo-woo stuff because people just want to know like how much iron is in broccoli or something like that. But the way we talk to ourselves really matters for the way we metabolize food, the way we balance our stress hormones, the way our parasympathetic nervous system, and I'm going like this for anyone who sees it, which is the vagus nerve, which is connection between the brain and the gut. This is incredibly important. There's research that shows if someone eats a meal and they're actively thinking negative thoughts about their body, Mm. the way that they metabolize that meal is completely different than if they eat that same meal, same person, same meal, measuring gut metabolites differently. When they're thinking positive thoughts, the outcome of that same meal is actually different. So this stuff like self-talk, stress management, sleep, it really does matter when we're talking about nutrition. Mm, I love that. I love that you kind of hit the peripheral um, topics because it's not just about the food you eat. It's how you eat it. It's when you eat it. It's the quality of food that you're eating. And those are all the pieces that I think the average, you know, American or industrialized person has a hard time unpacking. Um, yeah. Because we've been so uh, led astray by a lack of I'm going to call it culinary tradition. I think it's hard for a lot of us who feel disconnected. We don't have something, oh, this is what my great-grandmother cooked and then this is what my grandmother and my, you know. And there were some real uh, truths and I would even say like beautiful dietary elements baked into some of these culinary traditions that we've just lost Mm -hmm. unless you exist inside of those still today, which if you do, that's such a beautiful blessing. But um, I know for myself, I don't. So I'm always kind of grasping at like, oh, what can I glean from that? And and how can I marry that with sort of present day scientific evidence and backing and and then understanding how the whole industry works. So I think that's wonderful. I'd kind of dog, as we're kind of wrapping up a little bit here, I'd kind of doggered an idea and I don't want to to take up too much extra time with this because it's kind of random, but fasting. Curious what your thoughts are on the potential benefits and or detriments of fasting. Ooh, great topic. I could go for two more hours on this. I won't. (laughs) Let me try to synthesize it in a short way. Fasting has incredible benefits for autophagy, which is the process of cellular cleanup, like uh, getting rid of the bad cells, great benefits for digestion, especially for people with um, kind of chronic digestive issues, great benefits for blood sugar regulation in some. I'll get to the caveat in a moment. Uh, Great benefits for sleep quality if you're cutting your meals a little bit before bed. So there are lots of proven benefits. There's a big caveat, though, that most of the research I would argue all of the the large-scale studies on fasting have been done on men. And women are not small men. Mm -hmm. Women have a lot of intricacies that make us less able to fast continuously and to the extent that men do. This doesn't mean that women are less weak. I love being a woman. I think women are awesome. But we need to fast differently. And this looks like if you are under a lot of stress, physical stress, emotional stress, all of the stressors that I talked about at the beginning, and you're a woman, or I would say even if you're a man with questionable 
uh, hormone stability, that is not the right time for you to fast. That's going to be much more stressful on your body than it's worth. Mm. If you're at various phases of your cycle, like leading up to your period, that's not the right time for you to fast if you're a woman. If you are, I would say, no matter where you are in the cycle, even if you're not that stressed, an extreme fast, like a 36-hour fast once a week for a woman is just not going to be a good thing unless you're dealing with some very specific chronic conditions. And then for men, really taking that into account, including how much stress you're putting into your body, how much exercise are you doing, how much uh, actual nourishment can you get in in your, in your feeding window. I don't really like the term feeding window, but that's what they call it. So I'm going with it. So overall, I would say for most women trying to go for like a 12-hour fast overnight, it seems very simple, but a lot of people it's really hard to do because we're constantly as humans eating all day. 12-hour fast is a great start and then see how you do. And for most men, try to go for like a 14-hour fast and see how you do. And many people can increase it. Many people feel great right there. So you're saying – it has its benefits. It might be an effective tool to attack specific chronic ailments. But in general, women have other stuff going on that kind of muddy the waters. We've got hormonal stew going on, brewing all <laughs> all times at different yes. levels, right? And so, yeah, that's a common theme. I love that you said women are not just smaller men because a guest after guest after guest on this show has reiterated that same point of there are some physiological differences between men and women. And it's something I used to push back on Joey a lot because he would want to skip his breakfast. And um, I used to kind of say, hey, you should probably start your day. You're going into a busy office. You have to lead a team. You should you should eat something. I can't skip breakfast. I feel like trash. And he would be like, I feel pretty great. I'm going to eat a big lunch. But um, when he got into marathon training, I was like, no, really, you should be eating more food because you're training so much. So I'm curious in terms of fasting, how do you um, view fasted workouts versus having a little bit of nourishment before a workout, both for men and for women? Yeah. So fasted workout, if you work out in a fasted state, you will burn more fat in that workout itself. The newer research is showing that throughout the day, your body kind of compensates for that. So it ends up almost being equal, mm. that the fat burning is the same. Wow. Um, so maybe the benefit of that is less than we originally thought. Yeah. But I would still argue that fasted workouts have benefits in terms of telling your body it's okay to burn fat and not just burn sugar. Mm. So I do think fasted workouts are great if your hormones are stable and if you're not doing an extreme workout. Meaning if you're going to go for a 30-minute walk and you feel like your blood sugar is stable and you're not going to certainly pass out doing this, any of that, I would absolutely encourage you to do it fasted. But once you start getting into marathon training and things like that, the problem or the potential challenge is that if your body is going through this 15-mile run and really trying to – it's past the point of depleting its glycogen, which is its storage form of carbs, and it's trying to burn fat a lot in that moment – it can get into this state of stress, which we haven't talked a lot about cortisol, one of the stress hormones. That can be detrimental for a lot of reasons. Cortisol in the moment, no problem, but cortisol over and over and over, the abundance of cortisol, a very stressful state for your body is not that great. So if you were marathon training and if you were a man, I would say go for your shorter runs 
fasted, that's great. And then eat something before your longer runs. Give your body a chance to digest. Mm. And if you are a woman, I would say if you're going to do anything longer than probably like an hour, I would eat almost all of the time. Uh, But if you are doing a shorter duration, then experiment with it. See if Mm. you can do one, two, maybe three fasted workouts a week and then fuel for some of those other Mm. ones. That's really good. I like that you said kind of ease your body into that metabolic flexibility of burning fat because otherwise if you're just carb loading before every workout your body's gonna be like okay we have set steady source of fuel let's go mm-hmm. yes versus kind of hey no uh it's okay that we can burn yeah, some of we this. can burn yeah. we can we can burn yeah. in case you like get stuck on a an island somewhere for a day you know you can burn that fat so hey, just in case yes. you go to those islands you know what i'm saying <laughs> be prepared be prepared. Uh, you I never know. Really <laughs> I think that's so good. Anything else, uh, Megan? I know we're kind of running short on time, but this has been such an awesome conversation. Anything else you want to cover in today's episode? I just echo something that you said earlier, Liz, which is that there is so much hope in this. I have not come across any condition, and I've worked with a whole lot of conditions that we can't help in some way with nutrition. So for those people who have heard from a practitioner, oh, this is the only thing, medication's the only answer. You're just going to have to live with this for the rest of your life. Demand a second opinion. Do the research like I did way back when or find someone who can help you through. Our bodies want to heal. Mm -hmm. Our bodies don't want to be sick and overweight and blood sugar swingy all the time. Our bodies want to heal. They just need the right tools to do it. So I hope this conversation gave people some hope and some empowerment to go do it. I really think that we're Uh, kind of reaching a low point in terms of health, but that's going to lead to an upswing. People Mm. are beginning to feel more empowered with podcasts like yours. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Megan. um, Oh my gosh. So thankful to have you on here. And we definitely want to direct everybody listening to find you so Mm -hmm. they can come reach out, ask more questions or interact with you, whether you have- Grab your book. Absolutely. Um, We're going to definitely list a, a number of these, all these places that you've given us on the show notes of this. Uh, but where can people find you, get in touch with you, get your book, other resources you have to offer? Uh, what do you got? Yes. Yeah, so a lot of this lives on my website, which is thelionshare.org. It's L-Y-O-N-S share.org. I have so many free blog posts on there. If people are looking for anything, just type it in the search bar. I've been blogging since 2013. So Whoa. there's content that I don't even remember putting up <laughs> on there. That's a great uh, first start. And you can also find ways to work with me and things like that on there. Social media-wise, I'm most active on Instagram at The Lion Share. And then I have a podcast also, Wellness Your Way. Uh, and I would love to chat with anyone out there. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you for being a resource for people mm-hmm. to give them um, accurate nutritional information. Believe it or not, that's really hard to come by these days. So thank you for that. Thank you for all of your work and your dedication to learning. I'm so excited for you to continue on in your journey. Um, and I'm just really impressed by like your path and the awareness and confidence you had in yourself to say, you know what, doc, I think there's another way. So Mm. I think that's huge and really, really empowering. So thanks again for sharing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Megan. Until next time. Mm. Thank you so much for listening. That was Megan Lyons Mm -hmm. with an S. Mm -hmm. 
Um, unbelievable, such a positive person. Definitely go check her out. I'm walking away just encouraged just because she smiled the entire time. <laughs> yeah. My cheeks hurt from smiling back at her. It's just so good. It was so good to hang out with her. Go check her out. Uh, please just go check her out 100%. Yeah, she's I think phenomenal. she is unbelievably brilliant, clearly, and um, so willing just to, to, to share her thoughts and opinions. If you have any questions about this episode after we've kind of finished, we'd love to hear what those questions are. Mm-hmm. Um, she would most likely be interested to do a Q&A follow-up. And um, yeah, if there was any questions people had for Megan, reach out to her or uh, reach out to us. Mm-hmm. If you want to check out us, you can find us on Instagram. I'm at Joey Hazelmeyer. Elizabeth is at Liz Hazelmeyer. We have homegrown underscore education. We've got nutrition curriculum for you and your kids at home, www.homegrowneducation.org. And we've got goods for you and your family, everything from coffee and tea to soap and sourdough tools at shoptheh.com. Until next time, that's a wrap.